Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy. Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you for the feedback and support. And to the new listeners and subscribers who come on board with every new podcast. Now, if you could leave a rating or even a review, that really helps more listeners discover the show. Today, we focus on champions of law and football. Just where is the outrage from the British and European taxpayer over the funding of the Palestinian Authority, who use our money to pay convicted murderers who've committed terrorist atrocities in Israel? Now, these attacks are indiscriminate. They kill Jews, Christians, tourists of every nation, even their own people from the West Bank just going about their business in Israel. Tens of millions of pounds each year, every um, British person is paying in their taxes that goes to the Palestinian Authority. A significant percentage of that goes to salaries that reward terrorism. Today, a barrister and an author are my guests, a defender of Israel using the shield of legal justice, and a voice for the six million using Jewish football's greatest hero. The Holocaust didn't just account for the murder of six million Jews, but it also devastated Jewish collective memory to the extent that we don't even know who we were. Before Pep Guardiola and Jose Mourinho, there was Bella Gutman. If Bella Gutman was alive today, what would he say about the modern game? What would he say about people like Jose Mourinho or Pep Guardiola? For his uh, use of the media to motivate his own players to intimidate the opposition this was really Gutman's No, I'm not interested in the opposition but in this European Cup final in Bern it's natural to be at an advantage this game in my opinion is 50-50 for both of these teams so either can win David Bolkover will recount Bella Gutman's remarkable playing and coaching career to explain the lessons we may be forgetting about the Holocaust. But first, if there was ever an organisation which punched above its weight, UK Lawyers for Israel is it. Using law to counter the delegitimization and demonization of Israel, UK Lawyers for Israel is a voluntary group of highly skilled legal pros doing exactly what it says on the tin. And while other community organisations and government use political or cultural arguments for Israel... UK LFI unlocks injustices by finding breaches of the rulebook. As you'll hear from Chief Executive Jonathan Turner, this can lead to fundamental changes in the law, diplomatic successes and even questions in parliaments hostile to Israel. Now their work includes countering the excesses of the BDS, the funding of terrorist organisations via credit cards and other electronic payment systems, dealing with sports governing bodies and university student unions who refuse to recognise Israel or worse, try to get them banned. UK LFI have their plaudits and their cheerleaders within the community, but it's the backhanded compliments they get from anti-Zionists that perhaps are their biggest endorsements. Well, it's rather like the joke where a man sits opposite a rabbi on the train and sees him reading Al-Quds newspaper. So he asks... (laughs) Rabbi, you surprise me. Why why are you reading that instead of a Jewish paper? Well, I I gave up, he tells the man. In the Jewish paper, I read about rockets over Israel, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, cemetery desecrations, 
bad news. But in this paper, Jews control the media, the banks and the government. All good news. Websites Electronic Intifada and Mondo Vice have both regularly observed the impact UK LFI make. And when you hear the scale of their achievements and how wide-ranging they are, you'll be perhaps surprised that UK Lawyers for Israel consists of two nearly full-time people, husband and wife team, barrister Jonathan and solicitor Caroline Turner, plus a group of voluntary barristers and lawyers. UK LFI are funded entirely by private donations and subscriptions. And Jonathan started by explaining to me how it's all set up. It is an association of lawyers who use uh, our legal skills to support Israel. Uh, We also have an associated charity, UK LFI Charitable Trust, which uh, uh, deals with uh, education uh, relating to uh, law and Israel. Uh, and also helps victims of anti-Semitism, particularly anti-Semitism related to Israel. And is there an anti-Semitic function here in this country too? Absolutely. It is uh, a a major issue that we face in Britain today, is the resurgence of uh, anti-Semitism and uh, the uh, increase in coverage of it and reach of it, um, particularly with the availability of the internet to magnify all these um, anti-Semites are saying. In a sense, the internet has provided the legal industry and the legal framework with a real call to action. That's right. Also, I think there are other factors as well that have um, uh, affected um, uh, the growth of anti-Semitism. What are they? I think there's a real problem with uh, media coverage of Israel. That is also associated with uh, the extensive use by organisations hostile to Israel of international bodies producing um, and uh, uh, using their very large resources to produce uh, propaganda that's against Israel portrays a completely distorted picture of Israel and how Israel operates. Let me mention an organisation that you perhaps were thinking of when you uh, mentioned that, the United Nations who present many anti-Israel motions when compared to, for example, Hamas and Iraq and various others, a column of maybe Arab states and sympathetic states to the Arab world that produce a litany of arguments against Israel, uh, which in themselves are problematic, but actually wider than that, do prompt kind of anti-Semitism. In the United Nations there are 57 members of the organisation the Islamic Conference and uh, together with their developing country allies uh, they effectively control um, most bodies in the United Nations uh, and are therefore able to deploy them to uh, uh, support um, uh, their um, efforts against Israel. Now to that end you say you're at a, a disadvantage do you team up with other Uh, organizations that are more tooled up so that you can take them on toe-to-toe? Well, yes, we we work with a large number of organizations uh, in the UK and uh, around the world. Sometimes we do joint projects with them and sometimes we liaise with them. Um, But I would emphasize that um, although we are, in one sense, a small, primarily voluntary organization, we do have some very good lawyers in our association And uh, we have been able to achieve some, I I would say, quite amazing uh, successes uh, over the few years since we were uh, established. I think our opponents uh, got a a head start on us in terms of uh, using the law in uh, recent times um, to promote uh, their cause. Uh, And we are, to some extent, catching up. But uh, we are beginning to get our act together on our side. uh, And I think we played a significant part in that. Jonathan, we really must talk about 
um, the incentivization of the Palestinian Authority in paying their citizens to kill Israelis. That's what's happening every time a terror attack occurs. Some kind of pension is then paid by the PA to the person or the family that perpetrated the act of terror, the murder. And these salaries are very high. They go up the more, um, the longer the prison sentence and uh, hence the uh, more serious the crime. Uh, and uh, in the case of murders, um, they are much higher than uh, ordinary uh, salaries that are paid to doctors and nurses and teachers and other people doing proper jobs in the Palestinian Authority. So we've been very concerned about this. Uh, the British government transfers very large sums of money to the Palestinian Authority, tens of millions of pounds each year. Out of uh, this and other monies, terrorist salaries are being paid and they account for uh, 7, 8 or 9% of the Palestinian Authority's budget. It goes to salaries that war terrorism. It will be a point of disgust to every British taxpayer that they are sponsoring murder. That's what's happening. Uh, that's right. And uh, so we, we pointed this out to the government and um, said that they were committing criminal offences under British terrorist legislation, which prohibits uh, uh, people funding terrorism or transferring funds that uh, may be used for the purpose of terrorism. And so they did change uh, the system. Now, uh, the uh, grants provided by the Department of International Development are paid into a special EU uh, account only used to pay uh, salaries of ordinary civil servants. So that, that's a slight improvement, although of course it does release other funds uh, for the Palestinian Authority to uh, pay to the terrorists. But the other thing that we found was that PricewaterhouseCoopers, the accountants, had been auditing the account um, through which um, these sums were being paid, including the money to terrorists. So we brought a complaint against um, PwC uh, under the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises, which require multinational enterprises, and we say PwC is a multinational enterprise, um, they are required to uh, observe ethical guidelines uh, and to um, seek to mitigate uh, any adverse effects on human rights um, of activities in which they are involved. And, and we said far from uh, mitigating um, the impact of human rights of um, uh, this fund, uh, they are actually exacerbating it by providing cover for the British government to say this process is all audited and we know exactly where our money is going. That's what ministers repeatedly told uh, MPs who, who queried this, these activities. Uh, essentially, PwC was providing cover for that. Uh, and the current situation is that... Um, uh, the uh, British National Contact Point for the OECD Guidelines, which is part of the Department for International Trade, um, has held um, that there is a case that requires further investigation. They made a preliminary assessment. Uh, and interestingly, um, PwC, uh, their response to it was to say, well, our engagement was very narrow and we weren't asked to look at uh, whether uh, any of this funding was um, uh, being paid to uh, support terrorism. So it seems to me that uh, the bigger the business... The more international it is, the more amoral it can be, which is where you step in. That's right. We're, we are not uh, deterred by uh, persons. Uh, we, we will um, uh, seek to ensure that uh, 
the law and um, regulatory guidelines and requirements that uh, are there to um, uh, support human rights uh, are um, uh, enforced wherever we can. My favourite win, uh, really, is uh, the one uh, which um, really sort of launched us because it was right after we formed uh, the association when we were only a very small uh, number of people. Uh, But um, this was the year after the uh, flotilla, including the Mavi Mamra, had sailed from Istanbul and had been uh, arrested uh, at sea by uh, the IDF, but with casualties. Uh, Israeli soldiers were uh, badly wounded, and um, uh, nine of the uh, Turkish um, terrorists were killed. Now, the following year, the Hamas supported um, uh, people uh, assembled an even bigger uh, flotilla of 10 ships to sail from Greece. Uh, and we managed, uh, through um, legal means, to get this quietly uh, arrested in port in Greece without uh, having to have that military uh, intervention. That is a massive achievement, so no bloodshed. Jonathan, one of the biggest wins has to be the United Arab Emirates as the stage for international judo, where in 2017 Israel had to compete as something ascribed to international competition, whereas uh, two years later they could win a gold, be Israel, and have the Hatikva played above the Abu Dhabi Games logo. Uh, that's right. They, um, in 2017, uh, the Israeli judokas had to compete uh, merely as members of the International Judo Federation. Um, so rather ridiculously, the medal table read um, uh, uh, Russia five golds, um, um, International Judo Federation two golds. And the anthem that was played when uh, Israelis won um, the uh, gold was uh, that of the International Judo Federation. Um, we, and it's fair to say others, intervened, but our, our approach is uh, uh, very specific. We refer to the rules of uh, the sporting bodies. Uh, the rules of the International Judo Federation prohibit discrimination, and the International Judo Federation is also uh, a member of the International Olympic Committee because um, judo is an Olympic sport, and the International Olympic Committee has rules as well that prohibit uh, discrimination and require all nations to be treated uh, equally. So we um, uh, bring in the rules, and that is a, a powerful argument, and we were delighted to see Um, following uh, a very clear intervention of the International Judo Federation saying the tournament will be withdrawn from Abu Dhabi unless um, it um, uh, permitted um, Israeli athletes to Israeli judokas to compete as uh, Israelis. Uh, Abu Dhabi complied uh, and um, uh, the Hatikva was played and um, uh, the medals were credited to uh, Israel and um, the Minister for Sport, uh, Miri Regev, um, was able to attend and uh, uh, talk to uh, the leaders of Abu Dhabi and was uh, shown round the mosque uh, to Abu Dhabi. understanding in the Middle East uh, comes uh, uh, alongside the diplomatic progress that is um, uh, being made. Your work, which is strictly legal, it's not political, 
you make powerful arguments using the structure of the law can lead, therefore, to diplomatic goals being achieved. Full acceptance uh, of Israel in uh, sporting competitions and uh, uh, competitors from Israel playing peacefully in sporting and uh, other competitions against um, all other nations uh, of the world, um, including Arab and Muslim ones. Uh, One of the more important uh, wins in the sporting area that we achieved was when a Palestinian Football Association, headed by uh, former terrorist Jibril Rajub, um, sought to have the Israeli Football Association suspended. FIFA has a, a rule which says that a member association must not organise football matches in the territory of another member association. And uh, the uh, Palestinian Football Association said, well, Israel, uh, the Israeli Football Association is organising football matches in the West Bank, in our territory, and uh, that's contrary to that rule. Obviously, a lot of people made submissions, including uh, some very capable Uh, submissions uh, on behalf of the Israeli Football Association by Offereni, its uh, president, um, on the political aspects of this and um, the um, uh, importance of uh, sport uh, as um, uh, removing barriers and so on. But we made the specific legal argument based on uh, precedents in the uh, Court of Arbitration in Sport, which is the relevant international tribunal, which has held that a sporting association's territory is not necessarily coterminous with a political territory and this for very good reasons because there are lots of disputed territories around the world and if you started having to resolve matters on the basis of political claims uh, there would be absolutely no end to it Uh, and and that was one important component I think ensuring that uh, the FIFA Council ruled that um, they weren't going to um, uh, intervene in this and, um, and they weren't going to suspend the Israeli Football Association We also joined with others in pointing out that the Palestinian Football Association was in breach of large numbers of uh, uh, rules, uh, most notably in promoting terrorism through football competitions and uh, football names of football teams named after terrorists, competitions named after terrorists, uh, and, and so on. We drew attention to, to, to all of this. Uh, and uh, the FIFA Council said, well, we don't want to hear any more about this, so um, we just want to uh, organise football. We've considered the legal position very carefully and um, uh, satisfied that uh, it's not um, appropriate for us to um, uh, uh, take action. The Israeli Football Association uh, complied with FIFA's requests and made it uh, facilitated. One of the issues had been the difficulty for Palestinian football players to move around, and that, that was a legitimate point. Obviously, there are very serious security issues which Israel has to take care of, make sure that the kit isn't um, uh, being used to smuggle weapons and that terrorists aren't being uh, smuggled around as um, uh, disguised as football players. But um, the uh, Israeli Football Association, uh, with, uh, the, uh, uh, with the assistance of the Israeli government, bent over backwards to uh, and, and did everything they could to remedy difficulties and, um, and facilitate uh, the movement of Palestinian players. All that was done successfully. And again, um, that's the kind of thing that actually uh, promotes uh, uh, goodwill and understanding and um, contributes to um, everyone uh, playing the game in a, in a friendly way. Shekoyach, absolutely you. great. Let's talk about unseen anti-Semitic act. And I'm talking about passenger Mandy Blumenthal versus Q8 Airways. Now, Mandy, you know, is very, very forthright in her Zionism. And her anxiety, her anger at this was the catalyst for another case, which you guys won. 
Uh, Kuwait Airways, of course, met their match with Bandy Blumenthal, <laughs> one might say. Uh, <laughs> True enough. Uh, so she went along to uh, Kuwait Airways at Heathrow Airport and uh, asked for a ticket to fly to uh, Bangkok on Kuwait Airways flight. And uh, uh, the uh, ticket clerk confirmed that they had availability. Um, and then uh, Mandy presented her Israeli passport. And the ticket clerk said, ah, no, um, can't serve Israelis. We don't sell tickets to Israelis. Um, now, this is a blatant discrimination um, on grounds of uh, nationality, and um, there is no uh, defence of uh, justification where there is direct discrimination on grounds of nationality under the uh, Equality Act. Uh, members of uh, UK Laws for Israel uh, assisted Mandy to um, bring uh, proceedings against Kuwait Airways, for which she recovered uh, a significant uh, sum of uh, uh, compensation um, as well as uh, 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 legal costs. And uh, this resulted in extensive uh, publicity, including um, in the Arab world, including in Kuwait. And there, were even, there was even a question asked in the Kuwaiti parliament about this. Uh, and again, I think it's very important to um, uh, get across that Israelis must be treated like every other human being um, on, on the planet. All of these cases have a common thread, but there is no template for the way that you deal with these matters, is there, Jonathan? I'm trying to find a template. There isn't one. Well, there are some areas where things are, are relatively familiar. So uh, student unions in Britain are, are charities, uh, and uh, their objects are generally to promote uh, education at their universities. Uh, and so when student, student unions are entitled to hold debates about political subjects, because that's educational, but they're not uh, entitled to organise political campaigns. Uh, and there are cases which held that uh, they weren't allowed to organise uh, campaigns against um, British involvement in wars in um, Kuwait. And uh, we've pointed this out, that uh, they're equally not entitled to uh, uh, participate in campaigns against Israel and then try to hold a debate about Israel or a debate about any other political subject, but they're not entitled to actually uh, have an active campaign against Israel. And so BDS resolutions um, uh, at student unions requiring the student union to do this, that or the other to promote BDS, that's unlawful. And uh, we've pointed that out on a number of occasions. And again, we, we, we have established a, a, to some extent uh, a, a basis uh, for, for dealing with that. So, uh, but, but each time we come across something new, we then have to look around to uh, see whether there is a, a legal objection to it. Talking about um, enemy, I mean, this is something that Yakov Perry told me in uh, my previous interviews, that the enemy is listening. And indeed, uh, they will be listening to this. Um, we do occasionally uh, get... Um, uh, articles about us uh, in uh, anti-Israel uh, journals, um, uh, which um, uh, we regard as actually something of a compliment. So uh, Mondo Weiss uh, recently, which is a, a, an anti-Israel um, uh, internet uh, publication, uh, recently described us as uh, um, one of the quietest but one of the most influential organisations uh, combating uh, Palestinians in the UK. Uh, Middle East Monitor, a Hamas-linked um, uh, journal, had uh, w w when I uh, was invited to give a talk at APAC a couple of years ago. They had an article about British speakers at APAC, and they said uh, that uh, Tony Blair will be giving of his endless wisdom. 
And then they went on to say one of the more interesting speakers uh, from the United Kingdom this year is Jonathan Turner um, of uh, the organisation UK Lawyers for Israel and went on to uh, uh, describe our work and uh, said that um, bad um, causes need good lawyers to defend them. It's not bad being called a good lawyer, is it? Um, it, it, It's always encouraging, yes. (laughs) Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Jonathan Turner. Now, before Pep Guardiola and José Mourinho... There was Bella Gutman, the first superstar football coach and the man who paved the way for the celebrated coaches of today. More extraordinarily still, Gutman was a Holocaust survivor having narrowly dodged death by hiding for months in an attic near Budapest as thousands of fellow Jews in the neighbourhood were dragged off to be murdered. Gutman later escaped from a slave labour camp, but he was one of the lucky ones his father, sister and family, were all murdered. But by 1961, as coach of Benfica, he'd lifted one of football's greatest prizes, the European Cup, and he did it again the following year, rising from the death pits of Europe to become its champion in 16 years. And so, therefore, Gutmann performed the single greatest comeback in football history. Now, I deliberately recorded David Bolkover in a noisy cafe as it was in this environment that Jewish football's social aspect was conducted in the coffee houses of Vienna, Budapest, Prague and others. Bella Gutmann is a Holocaust survivor. A Holocaust survivor who won the European Cup. He was almost murdered in Europe. His family was murdered in Europe. And then he went on to win the most prestigious sporting competition in that very same continent. 16 years later. 16 years later, exactly. I refer to him as a Hungarian Jew or a Jew, because that's what he was. I think Hungary lost the right to call this great hero a Hungarian, given their treatment of Jews, including Bela Gutmann's family, during the Holocaust. And he's made his name in cosmopolitan Vienna. That's right. As a player, he made his name in, in Vienna, playing for Hakov Vienna, the great Zionist football team of the 1920s, where he was the centre-half in their title-winning team of 1925. Uh, they also toured around the world, Hakov Vienna, uh, with Gutmann being one of their star players. I tried to convey to people how much they were loved by the Jewish world, how much these people were film stars throughout the Jewish world. One time they, they arrived in Poland in 19. 19- uh, 24, just to play a pre-season game in July 1924 and there were 10,000 people just meeting them at the train station in Warsaw just to greet them uh, they went to New York uh, in 1926 and they broke a record for a soccer game which then stood for another 50 years these people were household names throughout the Jewish world at that time when I went to a Bauhaus museum in Tel Aviv I noticed a picture of some of the guys in Palestine, and it was like um, a league championship celebration. The streets of Dizengoff were flooded. That's right. Um, I had a tangle with um, George Galloway, who really demonstrated his fabulous ignorance when he pulled out the um, documents about the Palestine football team with uh, the tweet which said, and they said there was never a Palestine. And of course, the team was made up of Jews. Players and various other players from Berlin and, 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 and from Budapest. Absolutely. He's a legendary figure, not just for the fact that he was the first non-Real Madrid manager to win the European Cup, but he played for the all-time greatest Jewish football team. 
it's amazing actually how, how few Jews, even Jewish football fans, know about this incredible story. For me, this is the most gripping, tragic story in the history of football, uh, let alone a Jewish football story. Uh, Hakoch Vienna were not just a Jewish football team, they were also a Zionist football team. They were proudly a Jewish team. There were, ma- there were many Jewish football teams in Europe, and a lot of people know these stories, the stories of Bayern Munich, Ajax Amsterdam, for example. However, Hakoch Vienna were different. The, the Jewish ethos was actually etched the whole structure of the club. They wore uh, the blue and white of the Jewish national movement, they wore a large Star of David on their shirts and they were heroes throughout the Jewish world and they were despised by the supporters of their opponents in Austria and despite this huge hatred they won the Austrian League in 1925 13 years before the Anschluss 13 years before the club was closed down and its results were annulled by the Nazi history books. I'm delighted to tell you that one of the first sticker books I ever had as a child, Figurine Panini in 1978, had all the national champions of all the countries. And checking back in 1925, there it was, Hakua Vienna had been restored to the record books. And this is where our journey comes together, which is that I am an incredibly proud grandson and grandnephew of two quite prominent players in that side. They were first teamers, they played regularly. Uh, my grandfather Benno Passana and my um, great uncle Milo Passana, who was a regular first teamer in 1927, played with all these key players. The Jews were very Uh, integral in the development of football before the war. There are a lot of great Jewish coaches and the whole Central European style of football which culminated in Hungary beating England in 1953. That style of football, that passing style of football, the the more cerebral uh, style of football with an emphasis on strategy and tactics which English football had then up to then really neglected, focusing on the physicality much more than uh, much more on, on thinking. And that style of football had very much been founded by the Jews of Central Europe. It's this term muscular Jews that you hear so much in the development of Israel before 1948 and now into the early years of 1948. That sudden migration of the survivors from the athletic clubs of Central Europe, Middle Europe, to building kibbutzim and the towns and cities of modern-day Israel. Yeah, this is where this comes from. Yeah, and, and this whole idea, which was coined by the Zionist Max Nordau of muscular football, it was really the basis for these sports clubs that developed all over all over Europe. It wasn't just Hakkarah Vienna. There were many other great uh, Jewish sports clubs throughout uh, Europe espousing this idea of muscular Judaism. There was Maccabi of Warsaw, Hagibor of Prague. Bar of Berlin and, and the most famous Hakoch uh, Vienna uh, and yes they, they rejected this image of the Jew as weak as defenceless and they went onto the sports field uh, stressing this emphasizing this idea that Jews could be as strong as the Gentile they could compete with the Gentile and defeat them in physical activity I want you to say again what you said to me which made me cry a bit actually 
at the launch of your book at the Wiener Library. Jews often make jokes uh, that we make better accountants and lawyers uh, than we do sports players. This joke is very deeply embedded in, in Jewish culture. For example, in the, in the, in the film Airplane in 1980, uh, the great American comedy, an elderly Jewish woman puts her hand up. Air hostess comes over and the woman says to the air hostess, have you got anything very light to read? The air hostess hands her this tiny leaflet and you can see the headline, uh, Famous Jewish Sporting Heroes. And I used to find these jokes amusing, like many Jews do, and now I find them deeply upsetting because what they show is that the Holocaust didn't just account for the murder of six million Jews, but it also devastated Jewish collective memory to the extent that we don't even know who we were. His family was murdered during the war, his community was wiped out, many of his friends and former teammates were killed. And I think originally he got this feeling of it's me against the world from his time at Hakkawah Vienna. Uh, because this was a team playing amidst the most appalling hostility. Uh, and I think modern day football fans like to talk about the, the animosity, the hostility in football grounds. And they'll boast about, oh, I went to the Arsenal Spurs uh, game uh, yesterday and you should have seen what the fans were her the abuse they were hurling at each other and they were spitting at each other and were fighting in the ground afterwards. And this is nothing compared to what Hakkar Vienna had to face, both the players, their officials and their fans. Let's bear in mind that 13 years after Hakkar Vienna won the league in 1925, the Nazis marched into a welcoming uh, Austria and many of the fans of the opposing teams that Hakkar had to face were perpetrators of a holocaust against Jews, including, of course, many of Hakkar's fans throughout Central and Eastern Europe. There is a legend handed down in my family about the day that Hakkar won the title and the opposition was so furious at the idea that a 22-man ball broke out. I don't know about that. History often does get confused. There, was, there, were, there were certainly brawls on the pitch involving Hakkar uh, Vienna uh, and Gutmann himself was sent off on at least uh, two occasions and on one occasion he admits uh, to spitting at one of his opponents for insulting uh, for making an anti-Semitic remark and um, in um, in America when they went on tour in 1926 there was also another incident in which Goodman got into a fight uh, on the pitch and as a precursor to many of his anti-establishment tirades uh, throughout the years uh, Goodman was sent off by the referee and he refused to go and the referee kept pointing to the dressing rooms and Gutman said in Hungarian to him what are you going to do assuming and the game continued one of the most remarkable chapters is the fact that he got a visa to go and live in the United States went to New York but had such a book for football that incredibly stupidly he took a job back in Hungary and by the time he got sacked or he moved on from the club it was too late to go back I just find that unbelievable. And he was then in an attic, being protected by his father-in-law. 
That's right. In 1938, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. when Bella Gutmann was a coach, actually, at Hakoach Vienna, he was the last coach at Hakoach Vienna before the Anschluss. He got a visa to go to the United States, not just a temporary visa, a permanent visa. He could have lived there for the rest of his life if he'd wanted to. So he was there in New York in the summer of 1938, but there was nothing going on in football in New York in 1938. Football had been a, a big uh, a, a big thing in, in New York in the, in the 1920s, but had died by 1938. So what did Bella Gutmann do? He got wind of a job at a great Hungarian club, Oipesh, and he travelled back to Europe. How many Jews, bear in mind by this time, the summer of 1938, there were Jews throughout Central Europe ringing around the various embassies and consulates, trying desperately trying to get a visa, if not for them, then to send their children away without them. That's how desperate they were. They were sending their children away without them, on their own. But Bella Gutmann returned to Europe because he got wind of this job. He loved football so much that he risked his life for football. And the following year, in 1939, having won the Hungarian League at Oipest, the Hungarian League being the league in Europe at that time, along, along possibly with the Austrian and the Italian leagues, and he won the Mitropa Cup, which was then the, the primary interstate club cup at that time, the precursor to the European Cup. He got sacked in 1939 because he was a Jew. He was far too prominent. And uh, so he had to leave his job, but he was stuck in Europe by that point. He couldn't get to America. So let's fast forward now to the fact that he was in the sixth European Cup final. He was and became a European champion, and then, what do you know, he retained it. And against the odds, Benfica won the final 3-2. They also won against the odds against Real Madrid themselves in 1962. The funniest thing about Bella Gutmann is he still has a hold over Benfica because, of, of course, he was a man who exacted a curse on the club and said, you'll never win anything in a final again because of the way you treated me after we won our second European Cup. To this day, Benfica have never won a major European tournament. It's all because of Bella in heaven. <laughs> That's right. That's one of the most famous things uh, about Bella Gutmann. And there's one fact or one story people know about Bella Gutmann that's likely to be it after he won the European Cup for the second time in 1962 it's alleged that he approached the Benfica board of directors and he said to them listen I've won the European Cup for you twice uh, I want more money and one of the features about one of the very important features in terms, in terms of football history about Bella Gutmann is that he was, the, he was really the first football coach to assert the key importance of the coach and to demand the appropriate financial recompense. And coaches up to that point had not been very well paid because it was felt, generally, that it was the players that brought team success, not the coach. Now, could you imagine, now, if Pep Guardiola won the European Cup twice with Manchester City and he said to his board of directors, I want more money, what do you think they would say? They would, of course, say write your own check but in 1962 that wasn't the case it's, a, it's, it's very interesting to look back in history like that so the Benfica di uh, director said no you're not having any more money this is how the story goes so he said to them okay not only am I leaving but you Benfica will not win another European Cup for 100 years and since that time Benfica have appeared in 8 European finals and have lost every single one 
And this led to also an, a, 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 another incident in 1990 uh, when Eusebio, who the great football player, the greatest ever uh, Benfica player, who Gutman actually discovered, plucked from obscurity in from Mozambique in 1960. Uh, in 1990, uh, Benfica qualified for a European Cup final. Eusebio had, had by that stage retired and Gutman had died. He died in 1981. But the final that year was to take place in Vienna, where Bella Gutman was buried. He is buried in the Central Friedhof, the Jewish section of the Central Friedhof, the Central Cemetery in Vienna. So on the day of the game, Eusebio goes with a Benfica delegation to the grave of Bella Goodman. And Eusebio, it is said, knelt before the grave of Goodman and begged his former mentor to lift the curse. Uh, but obviously Bella refused and Milan won the game 1-0 against Benfica. Just to give you an idea of how um, isolated English football was, was that here was this fantastic coach, but it was only Port Vale that even took a look at him, and even they didn't think they'd have a bar of him. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it, that that nobody was no top club was interested in Gutman, despite the fact not only was he the greatest coach in the world at that time, but also, of course, he spoke fluent English. If Bella Gutman was alive today. What would he say about the modern game? What would he say about people like Jose Mourinho or Pep Guardiola? And what would he make of Israeli football? He'd obviously have been, at some point, the manager of the national Israeli team. He, I think, would love modern-day football because what we've seen in the last few years is a real emphasis on attacking football. And he would certainly love the way Guardiola plays, although Mourinho is often compared to Goodman, quite rightly, for several reasons, uh, for his... Uh, use of the media to motivate his own players to intimidate the opposition this was really Goodman's no, a me non interesse the adversario but there were a lot of differences between uh, Goodman and Mourinho and uh, I think most importantly Goodman loved attacking football Mourinho, Mourinho's emphasis has always been on defensive organisation Goodman once said I don't mind nil-nil, nil-nil's fine as a later score I just will never accept it uh, as a final score he would be a superb pundit because he was always going against the grain he was always, he was a very original thinker so he would always say things that would make you sit up and listen he wasn't just going to just repeat the, the mantras that everyone else was saying so he would have been fantastic on the TV as a modern day pundit as for Israel people always ask me why didn't Gutman end up in Israel like so many of uh his friends from Central Europe who managed to survive the Holocaust. Now, I think that Goodman was only interested in football. And he was not, not an ideological person, he was not a political person. His drive was to be the greatest football coach in the world. And Israel was, at that time, during Goodman's career, and still is, a relative footballing backwater. So I don't think Israel really interested him as a place to live despite the fact he was so isolated as a Jew in Europe. What is the message of Bella Goodman's life as a Jew to Jews of today, of the 21st century? I think the message is that the Holocaust was no one-off. And the message also is it wasn't just the Nazis who participated in the Holocaust. There are two 
Deborah Lipstadt divides Holocaust denial into two. She talks about the hardcore Holocaust denial, in which people deny the Holocaust took place or say that the Holocaust, the numbers involved in the Holocaust were deeply were exaggerated. She also talks about a softcore Holocaust denial. And I think, personally, that Holocaust denial takes two forms. One is saying that the Holocaust was a blip, some sort of aberration. We must learn from what a terrible event and we must learn from it from it and we must never let it happen again and the other it was that it was the Nazis who carried out the Holocaust there were many instances of anti-Semitism throughout the centuries and Bella Gutmann suffered from them many times apart from during the Holocaust for instance in 1920 there was the Hungarian white terror from which he fled Hungary and 3,000 Hungarian Jews were murdered also it's not true to say as Bella Gutmann's life proves, just the Nazis who carried out the Holocaust. They might have conceived it, but the whole of Europe participated in that Holocaust. And that's a message that we've lost somehow. I think partly, or mainly, because non-Jewish Europe doesn't like that truth. But you, if you take one look at Bella Gutmann's life story, you will see that truth shining out. That's David Bolkover. If you could leave a rating or even a review, that really helps more listeners discover the show. Thank you for listening to this edition of Johnny Gould's Jewish Statement.